For lo, the time is short for them. The wicked ones will be no more. Though carefully you search them out, you'll find them not. They will vanish all. But look and see. The meek shall dwell in fullness of the land and will in peace, abundant peace, full well, delight themselves forevermore. And this is at the heart of the end of Malachi. It's both a message of judgment and a message of hope. A message of judgment for evil men who are a part of the people of God in Israel. But we see also in the final passage of Malachi a message of hope that there will be a small community within Israel who will be like calves frolicking on green grass in the providence of our salvation that God offers us. And so I'd like to invite you to turn to Malachi chapter 4. It is our final talk. And some of you are like, yes. <laughs> Others are like, oh man, I've been really enjoying it. And you have. Thank you for your feedback. But let us look at Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Some final hard words, but also some words of great gospel hope. And remember the audience. It is written to Israel after they returned from exile and fell into sin again. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and evil doer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who will revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you'll go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I've already mentioned, we've come to the end of a four-month journey looking at the epistle or the little book called Malachi, this prophecy. And in the beginning, we heard that Malachi held a great burden. And that burden now is coming to a climax at the end, where he unleashes the final warning upon Israel, which comes from God, but it is a final warning to repent, to turn back to God, to overcome that spiritual apathy and to live lives of faithfulness before the Lord. And so we're at the end of the journey. And let me pray as we look at this message of both judgment and hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word convicts us. But not only convicts us, transforms us into Christ's likeness. We thank you for this snapshot 
of Israel's judgment and their strategy as they approach this coming judgment. And we pray that as we look at this text, that you will help us to apply it in relevant ways to our lives here today, 2,500 years later. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. I'd like to look at the first point in the text, looking at the first three verses, a snapshot of judgment. Today, Malachi declares to Israel that the end is coming. Look at verse 1 with me. And I really want you to have the Bible open on your phone or in a physical copy. Surely, he says, the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. In the Bible, there's an important phrase that I want you to understand. Two words. The day. Did you guys see that there? The day. It's shorthand for the day of the Lord, verse 5. And the day of the Lord is a phrase that Christian, Christians use when talking about often the end of the world. But in the Bible, there are many days of the Lord. While Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites called their great exodus from Egypt the day. The day of their liberation. It was a day of the Lord of sorts. Centuries later, Israel once found herself threatened by other nations again. And in this time, Amos, the prophet, declared, quote, The day of the Lord was coming, and this time the target wasn't another nation. It was Israel. Due to their corruption and violence, the day of the Lord then fell upon Israel in Amos's time. They were conquered, taken captive into exile, and from then on suffered under the rule of oppressive empires such as Babylon. And who came after Babylon? Assyria and all those other nations that they suffered under. Out of his sheer grace, God then rescued his people from exile and reestablished them in the promised land. But in the day of Malachi, stubborn Israel full of spiritual apathy, have forgotten the history books. Therefore, Malachi warns them of another day that is coming. Malachi tells us that this day will burn like a furnace. Think about a furnace full of heat, full of flames. It is a graphic image. One scholar says this, the day will be one of tropical heat when parched vegetation suddenly catches fire and dry fields become one vast oven in which even the roots of the plants are reduced to ash. This is a graphic image of judgment that is coming upon Israel. But what is this day that Malachi speaks of? What is this day? I'd like to say that Malachi gives us a time reference. Verse 5, look with me. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Who is Elijah? He's already lived and died. Who is this Elijah? 
Luke the Apostle, Luke, sorry, the um, historian, not the Apostle, picks up on this prophecy in Malachi and applies it directly to who do you think? Any ideas? Not Jesus, someone who came before him. John the Baptist. Luke 1.17. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. John the Baptist would arise before the day God judges Israel, in other words. But we are still left with the important question, what is the coming day of the Lord that Malachi speaks of? Well, as we carefully read the apostles, sorry, the gospels, we see that Jesus and John both spoke about judgment coming upon first century Israel. First century Israel. In Matthew 23 and 24, Jesus declared seven woes against the leaders of Jerusalem and then announced that the imminent destruction of the temple was coming in 24 verses 1 to 2. In other words, the religion of Judaism was coming to an end, judgment, all your temple worship that you polluted in the days of Malachi, all that worship was coming to an end, judgment was coming, Jerusalem, Jerusalem will be set on fire, Jesus is declaring. Woe upon woe upon woe, Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day, just like Malachi 500 years earlier, and just like John, who before Jesus arrived said, repent and believe the kingdom is at hand. The king is coming and he's going to be shifting the chaff from the wheat. Are you ready, Israel? Are you ready? And so the word of God to Malachi was then fulfilled in 70 AD. Alongside Jerusalem and the temple, all the arrogant and evildoers became stubble, chaff that is easily burned in the fire. In fulfillment of Malachi, the wicked were set on fire by Roman rulers. On that day, Jesus would use Rome to burn up the chaff of Israel with this tropical heat. But in the same generation, the first century, the same period of time, there would also be a great work of healing. With his winnowing fork, Jesus not only got rid of the chaff, but he would gather his wheat into his barn. Malachi describes it this way. Look at verse 2. For you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. I love that verse. The Son of Righteousness will arise. He will make himself visible and there will be healing in his name. In this time, the Son of Righteousness, the bright morning star, the radiance of God's glory would come to shine on those who feared the Lord. Isaiah also spoke about this great day. Isaiah 9.2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness a light has dawned. When the sun rises in the morning, it marks the end of a dark night. 
the coming of the Son of Righteousness in the first century in the flesh and body of Jesus Christ was the end of a dark era and the beginning of a brand new era. And I believe as a, as a reformed pastor in the now but not yet tension, when Jesus arose, it was the beginning of a new aeon, a new age that broke in, in around 30 to 40 AD. And that continues until Christ returns. But there was an overlapping period of 40 years and the old aeon, the Jewish aeon, came to an end in 70 AD at the destruction of Jerusalem. So the rising of the sun, Jesus, the appearance of the sun in the first century marked the end of a dark age. The coming day would not only remove the wicked, it would also heal the righteous. In Israel, first for the Jew, and then beyond Israel, to the Gentile. And that mission continues today. How did this healing occur? Jesus, living the perfect life, dying on a Roman cross for you, suffering, suffering under God's judgment, condemnation, absorbing all your sin. That is the greatest display of the Son bringing healing. His blood dripping to the ground. His blood dripping for you. To give you forgiveness. To redeem you from your captivity to sin. The world and the devil. Jesus paid the ultimate penalty for you and now provides you full healing if you believe in him and we can be assured of that healing because the son of righteousness did not stay in the ground he rose with healing in his wings for you and then imputed his own righteousness to you so that you now can seen as perfect before God that is wonderful news of the gospel. <clears throat> and so the coming day would not only remove the wicked, it also heal the righteous. Those who turn to Christ and receive the justification that only Christ can give. And so what are the effects of Christ's healing work? Well, the first effect is the righteous would experience joy. Look at verse 2. You will frolic like well-fed calves. I love that image. Woo. You're just full of joy. You're just frolicking around. You are exuberant. You are full of cheer. Have you heard the story about when the Berlin, Berlin Wall fell? It started out with a handful of dust falling, but in just a matter of hours, anyone, nobody could stop it from falling down. Before long, bulldozers were hauling it we're pulling it down. What relief was on the faces of those who were now able to cross that wall. It was like a joy. People ran once they saw that wall fall down. And when we 
break through the wall of sin and death that stops us from being in relationship with God, we experience what is joy. This satisfaction. There is such a relief when the guilty are forgiven. When we are freed from our captivity to the dark world, we frolic back into the world with exuberant joy. I love what this pastor says. The only lasting and fully satisfying joys for any man lie on the other side of a cross. The blood of Christ washing clean a dying sinner is the beginning of a life of endless cheer. And so I want to ask you this question. Do you have this joy? Would you describe yourself as someone who frolics like a well-fed calf because of what Christ has done for you? This is the chief fruit, effect of forgiveness, of redemption, of recognising what Christ has accomplished for you. Just experience joy. True satisfaction. And the second fruit is this. The righteous would experience victory. Verse 3. You will trample the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And so through their triumph in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the righteous would one day march over the ashes of a war-torn Jerusalem. They would not be the rubble of their former fallen brothers. They would stand above the rubble as forgiven victors. And so in Malachi 4 verses 1 to 3, the prophet provided a snapshot, I believe, of the coming judgment that would fall upon Israel in the first century. Even though I argued that this judgment would be fulfilled in that time period, the passage is still nevertheless relevant for our own discipleship. While there was a day of the Lord in the first century, the apostles spoke also about a greater and more terrifying day of the Lord when Jesus would return at the end of the age, the end of the millennium. And like Malachi, the apostles taught that judgment between the wicked and the righteous would begin with the household of God. Just like Israel, it begins with the household of God, 1 Peter 4.17. The question for you to consider is this. Are you ready for such a reckoning? We are living in the final days between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. Are you prepared for the imminent return of Jesus Christ? While the news of God's judgment might make you feel uncomfortable, see it as an aspect of God's pleading grace. Out of his love, God warns us that we might repent and be saved. Malachi warned Israel that they would repent and be saved. Paul says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. (coughs) And so have you woken? Are you alive? Are you awake to the reality of who Christ is? Is he your Lord? When it comes to the essence of your life, would you say that Christ rules you by his word? If so, you are awake. 
You are awake. You have experienced Christ's healing rays. You will be saved on the final day. Alongside all your brothers and sisters who have confessed the name of Jesus. Who have declared that Jesus is Lord. So friends, we've received a snapshot of judgment. I'd like to now provide you some practical kind of thoughts for approaching judgment day. A strategy for judgment. And so what is the strategy that Malachi taught Israel? First, Malachi taught the righteous to remember the law. Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. But how does the law help prepare Israel for her fast approaching judgment? Well, one temptation is to think that if the people of Israel keep the law, then all will be well with them on judgment day. But that is to misunderstand the key purposes of the law. Since the fall, sinful men and women can never perfectly keep the law. We are, by nature, rule breakers. Often if God says, do that, what do we do? Do that. We, by nature, as fallen men and women, break the law. Salvation has never been achieved by our good works. It can never be earned by law-keeping. Salvation is always a result of the free mercy of God. It is a gift which God bestows upon those who believe. The purpose of the law is not that people might merit salvation by law-keeping. The purpose of the law is to alert people to the fact that no matter how hard they try... They can't live up to the standard of perfection, which is our God. The Lord teaches us that we always fall short. Those Ten Commandments, for example, say that you suck. (laughs) You sin. It convicts you. And so if we study the law with honesty and keep the moral laws as our standard for holiness, which God has commanded the people of Israel, and I believe our moral principles for all time, we will begin to see our absolute failure as we try to live up to God's moral standard. Overwhelmed by our sin, we will then beat our breast and cry, like the tax collector in Luke 18, God have mercy on me, a sinner. God have mercy on me. Paul the Apostle also says this, The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so before the return of Jesus Christ, we must remember the law of God for it reveals our desperate need for our saviour. Israel must remember the law of God before judgment falls upon Israel because also it reveals their desperate need for this saviour who would rise with healing in their wings. And so while the moral law of God is a good standard for all time, its ultimate purpose is actually to reveal our failures so that we can be convicted of our sin and turn to the one 
who brings us true redemption. I remember I did a lecturer, lecture with my lecturer, and that lecturer was Peter Jensen. And he asked the question to the class, hands up if anyone knows by heart the Ten Commandments. And no one put their hand up. <laughs> Maybe we were able to list a few off. Honour your father and mother, you know, worship God alone, do not use God's name in vain, etc. But he actually said, that is a problem if you don't remember the summary of the law. And he said this, if we don't know the law, how can we know our sin? And I was like, oh. And if we don't know our sin, how do we know our need for a saviour? And so I would like to suggest today a strategy for you. First of all, is actually to begin to memorise the law. Jesus said, love God, love your neighbour. What does that mean? Well, that's actually broken down further in the Ten Commandments. And so by memorising the Ten Commandments, we begin to understand God's moral principles for the good life and also our areas of weakness so that we continue to depend upon God as repentant sinners. And secondly, the second strategy is to love like Christ. The mark that shows we are ready for judgment, I would say, is faith working itself out through love. How might we put this love that flows from faith in practice? Well, Malachi teaches us this truth. Malachi teaches us in verse 6 that true repentance, quote, turns the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The chief application of faith working through love, in other words, is the work of bridging the generational gap. The gospel takes effect in our lives through the healing of cross-generational relationships. Malachi is saying, before judgment falls upon Israel, make sure, fathers, that you love your sons and sons that you love your fathers. And this is a universal principle. We too, according to the epistles, are called to bridge the generational gap and love others from other generations. Yes, Malachi is speaking directly to fathers and sons, but also we could apply it to mothers and daughters. Or mothers, how they care for sons and how sons respect their mothers. The key principle is that love should express itself in solid, intergenerational commitments. And so how do we know if a person is prepared for Judgment Day? We know they are prepared for the imminent return of Christ because they think about their children, their children's children, and their children's children's children. People who are prepared for the end do not have rapture fever and therefore give up on discipleship because they think Jesus will return yesterday. No. 
We must live in a degree of tension. We must not only live in such a way where Christ could return in an instant, he could return right now. I believe that. His mission might be ending right now, and you might be the last sinner to repent, and boom, Jesus is here. Could happen. But also, we should live with a worldview, I would like to suggest, that's long-term, that thinks beyond our own century. If Jesus was not to return for another millennium, how would this outlook change how you lived? What would you do? First of all, you would do anything to bridge the generational gap. If you are a parent, it would become a chief duty to pass on the gospel baton to the next generation. If you are a teenager, it should be your mission to learn from your parents so that you can understand what true discipleship looks like as you honour your father and your mother and seek to learn from their example. Yes, you sometimes need to spit out the bones, the bad bits, but try to learn from their example. Yeah? If your parents are Christian, you've likely learned something good from them, haven't you? If you are a first-generation Christian, like my, my wife up the back there, it's essential to have people who can become those spiritual parents for you. The idea is that this gospel should express itself in love and that love should unite people together. Not from the same age demographic, but across every age demographic. I appreciate these words by one commentator on this passage, John Benton. I really valued his commentary. He says this. Rebellious Christian teenagers who view parents with resentment are not prepared for the day of judgment. Unloving Christian parents who make little or no attempt to understand their youngsters and the pressures of the world they live in are unprepared for the day of judgment. I'm not saying that every Christian family must be perfect, but there must be love there, both ways across the generational gap. The love of Christ takes effect in our lives through healing, the healing of cross-generational relationships. For this reason, a church that is not full of all generations is a hard sight to see. It's actually one of my burdens I carry as a pastor. In fact, one of the greatest tragedies of the church over the last few decades is that the generation gap has grown to split churches and continues to divide Christians. I've experienced it here. Over this time, new styles of church have emerged, which are great. One is based on youthful music and freedom in worship. The other is based upon older rituals and traditions. And it saddens me that we split because of that. We split the generations because of that. Why can't we have all of it? <laughs> a bit of liturgy there, a bit of modern citizens' worship there, a hymn there. Why can't we have it all? One pastor said, Often the debate over formats for worship are nothing but a thin disguise 
for a lack of love and understanding between the generations. A lack of love and understanding. You know what? I would love to have one service on Sunday morning rather than two and split the church from 60 down and 60 up. It's a sad thing. God finds no joy in this division and I think it goes against the gospel of love. Our God longs to see the body of Christ Jesus unified, especially as the final day approaches. And so here's some words of encouragement. There are fathers in our church who have embraced my encouragements to start family worship. Family worship is the simple tradition around dinner time of reading a passage of scripture, praying with your kids, and maybe even singing a song. You are bridging the generational gap. So keep going. I would like to encourage grandparents. Some of you faithfully bring your kids to ch- your grandkids to church. I want to encourage you to keep on doing that. Yes, there might be a generational gap there between your grandkids and you. Continue to trust in the sovereignty of God and his providence and continue to be faithful as you have been faithful over the last 50 years. Parents, keep on bringing your kids to church and youth, make it your effort to understand why they are so passionate about bringing you because there's a reason. They love Jesus and want you to hear the good news of Jesus as well. Because he's the best news that you could ever imagine. He's the good news for this broken world. And so keep on loving each other is my point by bridging the generational gap. Well, church, as we await the glorious return of Jesus, we need to let faith express itself through love. As we await the end of history, we need to stir one another up to love and good deeds as to be faithful people of hope. Brothers and sisters, on that day which is coming, I'd like to share the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, who said, Everything sad will indeed come untrue. Our tears will be dried, our sorrows will be comforted, our sickness healed, our losses made more than whole. On this final day, we will be like happy calves, basking in the springtime sun, savouring the fullness of our salvation in Christ, and all his lovely, kind, and gracious words to us. We, in other words, as Christians, have much to look forward to. And so let us have this snapshot of the end. And as we approach the final day, may we continue to be faithful with the time that God has given us. And so let me close with this simple question. Are you ready for the return of Christ? If no, let us put some strategies in place to prepare our hearts for his return. If yes, continue to be faithful as you await his return. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our final message on Malachi. We thank you for feeding us with his wisdom and prophetic words over the last four months. And we do pray that as we continue to reflect upon what we have learned this year in the book of Malachi, that you will help us overcome spiritual apathy and be people who are living with our eyes always set on Christ, who will return at any hour. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.
And that is all.